Now what? Well, I'm going to wait. I know, I know, I know. If everybody would think about our party. Um, yeah, let's, it's somewhere in the middle of next month. Just if everybody could hold on to that. I don't, I'd like to start. Um, what's I saying? Oh, I want to just read the gospel reading because it, to me it's, it's just an amazing, I, I, I don't even know the word for it. Teaching on Christ's part is somehow inadequate. But, but just as a side note, um, I thought it was really interesting that this reading was the reading for Father's first weekend homily. Because it seems to me it takes a lot of courage to speak to this homily because it, it is indirectly a, con a condemnation of everything in the world, everything worldly. So I wondered how Father would deal with it. I can remember when Father Flynn first came here. To, to, I mean, among the other things that stand out for me, um, of, thing, of homilies that I remember, or something that he's brought to us as our priest, um, I think it would, may have been his first homily. He called it a state of the union. And the, the major motif of it, if I remember correctly, was he said, I'm drawing this line. He drew a line in the sand and said, don't cross this line, Satan. It was his way of committing wow. himself to good and I think asking us to do the same thing. So indirectly he was saying, put away sins. And he, took, he used the image of drawing a line in the sand. I remember that distinctly. And one of the other favorite metaphors um, of his, I'm sure you all remember, is Dore and B. You can choose Dore, <laughs> or you can choose Dore B, but make, make no bones about it. You're either going to go to heaven or hell, so what you do matters. So throughout his wow. time with us, he, he tried to be as, I think, tried to be as good as he could. He just wasn't stern or you know overbearing. But he was trying to make it clear that our choices have consequences and we take them seriously. So, so I, anyway, I wondered how Father Sojin would do, and and I, I I personally thought he he handled it really well because it was clear. And then at the end of his homily, asked all of us to take seriously was that those things that inconvenience us to not let them keep us from doing the harder things, and the the. Um, the reading spoke so directly to it. So I want to I just want to read that as our prayer today. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, let your blessing be upon us this night. Thank you for um, the gift of yourself always to us, your presence and your words. Um, and often the sternness of them, the, the warnings that your words carry. Um, you ask us um, to give ourselves to you and offered your life as an example of what it is you're asking. <clears throat> so with that prayer, um, this is from the reading. <clears throat> this is from um, the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Jesus came down with the twelve and stood on a stretch of level ground with a great crowd of disciples and a large number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And raising his eyes towards his disciple, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, for you will be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude and insult you, and denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy in that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven, for their ancestors treated the prophets in the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for their ancestors treated the false prophets in this way. Gospel of the Lord. Um, we offer our prayers in your name this night, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, just a quick, blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. So often I hear people read that as if it's Christ saying, um, blessed are you who are in poverty, you know, the poor, not the rich. I think that's part of his meaning, but I also think he means, blessed are you who are without Christ. If we use our money and our material goods to replace him, even even if we think we're rich, to not be without to be without God is a condition of poverty. Um, he's saying, um, "Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom, the things of the world don't keep you from Him. You will be glad one day." So every one of these beatitudes is a con- condemnation of the world, the wealth, you know, security, comfort. You're happy, laugh, because so often. Um, those conditions keep us from taking care of other people. And that was his um, great concern. He said it over and over again in so many ways. So keep this in mind when we go through this, because in a sense purgatory is addressing the Beatitudes. And I I think you know, if you've been reading, if I remember, I'm still working through it, it's been ages since I've read it, but you know that um, each level has its own beatitude. That, that each level, on each level, sinners are working off a, a fault that directly relates to each one of these. And as they, as they finish and complete it, they've entered into a condition of blessedness. They're, they're becoming more and more whole in blessings as they climb up the mountain. Okay. Okay. Um, um, I want to um, very quickly read the, the Browning poem and then start in Purgatory because I think there's some amazing, some amazing things going on in what we're doing tonight. <clears throat> Remember, this is Robert Browning, 19th century. Um, his poems are uh, um, radical. Um, nobody had written poetry like this before. He's writing what literary people would call dramatic monologues. They're like the lyrics that we've been reading. Instead of instead of a lyric, everybody pay close attention to this because instead of a lyric being an, an expression of the poet himself towards his beloved or whatever Wordsworth of nature or Shakespeare addressing a poem to his beloved or John Donne even though John Donne's doing something different. Browning's creating a character who speaks in the private eye, the voice of the lyric. So the lyric up to this time, remember, has always been 
an expression of the hidden self of the lyric poet, the I, who he is. Um, narrative tells a story about somebody else. Drama tells a story about somebody else. The lyric has always traditionally been an expression <coughs> of the inside, those, those qualities <coughs> of the person that are invisible that we don't see, that he's making known in the poem. Browning departs from that convention because what he's doing is creating a person who speaks in his own private. And what it allows him to do is reveal evil inside of a person. So instead of these romantic expressions of love, these sentimental expressions of love, we're getting these very dark poems. And it helped Eliot produce the love song of J. Edward Prufrock, which we, which we did weeks ago. Okay? So we did the, the poem called The Soliloquy in the Spanish Cloister last week. Tonight we're doing The Last Duchess. In The Last Duchess, we've got um, a man speaking about, wait, a man who's entertaining um, an emissary, somebody who's been sent by a very wealthy person to help um, uh, bring about a marriage. So the man of the poem has lost his wife and um, is entertaining the idea of marrying the daughter of a very wealthy camp. So he's trying to impress this guy, um, but in doing it, in, in, she's showing a portrait of his wife, and in doing what he does, he's really he's giving himself away to us. Um, not so much to the emissary, the, the guy who's come to make this arrangement for the wedding. Is everybody clear on that, that context? Okay, that's the context. So, we, we're getting an interview of this duke, speaking about his duchess, who's dead, um, when he's receiving a visitor and taking the first stages of perhaps arranging a, a wedding to have a new bride. Okay? And we'll see that wealth is not a small matter for him. He, 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 he's a wealthy man, he wants more. So the marriage will either benefit him financially or not, okay? My last duchess. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands work busily a day, and there she stands. Remember, that so much of the art of the Renaissance was a model for all of Europe. The Renaissance started in Italy, 13th century, roughly 13th, 14th century. It took two, century, two centuries to get to England. The Renaissance doesn't occur there until the 16th century. And it's at that point that the Shakespeare, the, the great tragedians, John Donne, the, the, the uh, metaphysical poets, you know, all those people, the great painting. But they look back to these great Italian painters, um, these new aca Platonic academies, Aristotelian academies, schools that were springing up everywhere. They, they just changed the face of Europe from the 13th century to the 16th century. So he's, he this, this Duke loves those Renaissance paintings. To be able to talk about them indicates that you're an educated man, a sophisticated man who knows his art. Pandel's okay. hands work busily a day, and there she stands. Will it please you sit and look at her? I said, Fra Pandolf, by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured continents, the depth and passion of his earnest glance. But to myself they turn, since none puts by the curtains I have drawn for you. This is a little bit like pulling back the curtain on the Mona Lisa. Because you want to ask yourself, 
what was going on in her? What was she responding to that gave that glance that so fascinates people? You know? um, and seemed as they would ask me if they durst how such a glance came there. So not the first are you to turn and ask thus, Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the Duchess's cheek. It wasn't just her pleasure with me, her husband. Um, perhaps Fra Pandolph chanced to say her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-blush that dies along her throat. Did the painter capture everything about her? Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and caused enough for calling up that spot of joy. The painting obviously gives some sense of the joy that she took in things, but not always her husband. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, t'was all one. My favor at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard, orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech, or blush at least. Clearly, whatever she did, she took a pleasure, and everybody saw it. She thanked men, good, but I thank, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. Is everybody getting a picture of this guy? He has a wealthy ancestry behind him. He's vain about it. Um, he doesn't lose the opportunity to let this emissary know and give some sense that somehow his wife wasn't, uh, what's the word? Um, appreciative. appreciative of that fact. Okay. As if she ranked my gift a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling? Even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such a one and say, just that or that in you disgusts me, here you miss, or there exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened so, that is you moralizing to her, or plainly set her wits to yours forsooth and made excuse, even then would be some stooping, and I chose never to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whenever I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? This grew, I gave commands. Hold on to that, I gave commands. Then all smiles stopped together. There she stands as if alive. Will it please you rise? We'll meet the company below then, I repeat, the count your master's known munificence is ample worn, that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. I'll let your count offer as much as he wants for me to marry his daughter. Notice the understated way he puts that. It's ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed, though his fair daughter's self, as I vow at starting, is my object. Nay, we'll go together down, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, though a rarity which claws of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. If you read this through the first time, you, you may think nothing more than this guy's maneuvering a visitor to 
take whatever advantage he can of his own state, his wealth, his name, his reputation to um, to make this match because he'll obviously he'll stand to inherit from it. I'm just going to say I don't want to go into. If you read it closely enough, you you get a strong sense that his wife has just died, and there's a serious question whether or not he had her killed. Mm. So he's just making arrangements here for another marriage, and if he is, and, and the count who's sending this emissary has no clue about what we know, and what we know is if the marriage does go through, there may be another another wife lost. I, that's the most obvious thing. I'm going to leave it there. But the other thing that's really interesting, notice how attentive he is to the artwork, how he loves art, and the question is whether his his wife didn't measure up that she wasn't as perfect as a work of art and not only that but she didn't pay the attention to him that he wanted to pay and that's why she's no longer here so on the surface you can read this and you know think not much about it but if you go into it like the uh, soliloquy in the last or in the, in the Spanish cloister and in J.F. Prufrock <laughs> In the modern world, we, we're getting these lyric poems of this sinister interior to the human person. That, that things aren't always as they seem on the outside. So on that happy note, <laughs> let, I'll, I'll leave a minute for any, any quick comments, but I, don't wanna, I really don't want to take any time. But any, any quick responses or questions that we can tackle in a I had a I had a poem, a lyric on my mind. Um, I can't remember what it was. I've got to, I've got to give this some thought because we've looked at um, three dark poems now: Proof Rock, Spanish Cloister, and My Last Duchess, and, and they're they all suggest something dark and infernal. And so I'm going to try to come up with something a little bit. Or positive, and, but, re but remember this: what's positive about these poems is that the veil is pulled back, and we can see things as they are. They're not hidden anymore. So, whatever evil they're showing, there's a good in our seeing it. Okay, that's exactly how Dante starts the Divine Comedy. Remember, um, in the middle of my life, in this dark wood, what good I found there, I want to tell you. What he's going to show us is all this evil that he encountered and how it helped him turn his life around and go up that mountain and then into the heavens. So, so before yeah. Browning were poems, I mean, the dark poems just weren't even good or there weren't any dark poems? Sorry, Mary, say that again. What's the beginning? Well, you were saying how he kind of was breaking out the mold, so. You were saying before this, most poems were like love poems. Mm -hmm. So does that mean there weren't any dark poems, or there just any weren't, weren't any good dark poems? No, if if you look at the tradition, you, if any you have any sense of poetry from your education, you know that what preceded Browning belongs to the Victorians. The age that preceded him were the Romantics: Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats. Um, who am I missing? Byron and, and missing somebody else. But they're all romantics. And if you look at those poems, Wordsworth um, really doesn't deal with evil. Shelley doesn't 
per se. Blake gives glimpses of it, but we never go into the interior like this. To find something that does that before this, as in my reading knowledge, you have to go to Shakespeare and some of the sonnets where he's looking at something dark. And even he doesn't do this. Or John Donne. If you read John Donne's poetry, you'll, you'll see John Donne doing the same thing. He takes a persona um, and, and shows us in that person a dramatic situation that makes us aware that this person has got a lot of bad things in him. But but Dunn Dunn's the probably the what probably the the most amazing lyric poet of the whole tradition, because there's not an emotion, not an aspect of our inner world that he didn't explore. He wrote love poems to his wife that are clearly expressions of joy and gratitude, and but he's got all these other sonnets that are um, that are a little bit like this that show a dark passion. A, um, I'll bring, I'll bring a couple, I'll include them so you can <laughs> so you get a better taste of how, how, how much bad we're capable of, um, that these poets have helped us to see. Okay, quick, quick review. I want to get on to purgatory because this is... Um, we're in the world of um, anti-purgatory when Dante and Virgil emerge from hell, they come to the shores of purgatory. And you remember what happens. They, um, they're greeted by Cato, who's the guardian of purgatory. Dante has to go to the, um, to the water, to the ocean, and wash himself. And we get that image we got from Odysseus. Remember that um, of crossing this path that no man had ever survived alive. So Dante's approaching that mountain that he approached in the beginning but couldn't climb. And it's the same mountain we learned that Odysseus tried to, to, to look forward to climbing on his own. So from everything that's preceded this, we know that purgatory in some sense represents man recovering the completeness he once had in Eden. And that's why Odysseus' ship went down because he he was showing how he, how unaware he was of his own limits, the hubris in thinking he could complete his life without God, basically. Um, a couple of things emerged in these opening cantos. Uh, we learned from Cato that he separated from his, his wife Marcia, and um, we learned from that, it's a, it's a, a foretaste, it's a foreshadowing of what we're going to see throughout the whole work, as a matter of fact, that the fact that couples or family members love each other didn't guarantee them a place in heaven. That, that um, over and over again we, we get um, scenes in which one person will refer to a, um, a family member in hell um, or in purgatory. And here we learn that Marcia, the woman he loved, is in hell. And the interesting thing about that scene is that he expresses no regret. He cannot feel pity. This is not a place where pity is what's going on. He says it's the law. So it, in a sense, he represents an ordered, a properly ordered emotion for what, what's about to begin. If you remember, and, and um, I can't remember, I, I'm going to have to find it again, but I think it's at St. Peter's Gate. Yeah, it's at St. Peter's Gate when the guardian says, do not look back. Because if you look back, you lose, your, you lose it. 
and we remember the echo in um, in um, Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot and his wife said not to turn around, and they were told not to look back. And the wife, the wife, the wife would not let go of what she wanted. She would not give it up. She looked back for that in that longing, gone. So one of the conditions of moving into St. Peter's through the gate into to begin purgation is do not look back, let it go. So um, Cato represents a lot in just in himself as a person. Remember, he committed suicide, not in despair, for freedom. It's a little bit like um, what terrorists do. I, I think of Islamic people who believe that if they, you know, sacrifice their lives, um, they will go um, to be with Allah. Um, it's not exactly like that, but it's the closest thing I can think of that we would all be familiar with. This is an act of suicide. He's taking his own life. He's not sacrificing it in a battle. He's taking his life in his love of freedom at a time when that freedom was being destroyed. I think the most important thing to take away from Cato is his sternness. He's an, he's, he's an image of a condition of sternness that is, is the precondition for going to, to begin to pick up penance. Because if you don't have that firmness, the habit is to look back. I want to drink. I want drugs. I want to eat tonight. I think about <laughs> I've been working on giving up going to the cracker box in the evening to have crackers in the you know in the middle of the evening or watching a movie or something and I've been telling Suzanne it's like withdrawal. You know, it's that it's that it's that inclination to want something when you've said no. But that inclination is still there. The, the sternness that's asked to turn our will against those things that are not good for us. We also saw Dante's critique of art. Casella comes off the trip, off the ship, sorry, it's the ship of souls, they're all singing as one. And Casella recognizes Dante and goes and puts his arm around him. Dante recognizes him then and does the same. Remember, <clears throat> I described that uh, moment, I compared it to Wordsworth's poem, Surprised by Joy, that we're, sometimes we're so, over, so overcome that we're taken out of ourself and forgot. Remember, Wordsworth lost his sister, and he's in nature taking this walk, and he's so enraptured by what he sees that he turns to say something to her. The joy is so great that for a moment he forgets she's dead. That that's, that, that's the first expression of wonder. Remember I said wonder is, is the constant in the, in the journey up purgatory, that it's no longer irony. It's wonder again and again and again. So for a moment they forget themselves and they're so caught in the joy that they feel with each other that they want it's appropriate to sing a song and so the two of them start singing and then Cato pops up and says, what are you laggards doing? Get on! Because you're, you should be doing all you can to get on to God, not wasting your time. So he's an image of the kind of sternness that's necessary to take on something hard. Without it, our constant inclination is to do to do away with boundaries, to make excuses, to give it up. So what's beginning here requires a real firmness of will and a spirit of self-denial. Dante has to turn away. He goes to the water to wash his face um, because humility is the one thing he needs most of all to, to carry out this task. And the other thing that I that I did last week was I know it was something of a review for a lot of you who've been here already, but I remember I did the Plato Cave. Yeah. 
Um, let me just review that. I, I, some of you have heard this, I, I know, more than you want to, wanted to hear, but let me do it again. Remember, Plato um, just created this allegory as a way of showing how trapped we are by the world. This is Plato, non-Christian. He, he, this is long before Christ came. And according to his allegory, all of us are chained on a wall. Up and behind us there's a fire with people in front of it carrying books. And the light from that fire projects images on a wall. And everybody who's chained takes those images, appearances, for reality. And remember, the appearances are cast by the books. It's Plato's way of saying that books shape the way we see things. If you've grown up on Freud, if you've grown up, if you've grown up on Allah, if you've grown up on an Old Testament, you've grown up Christian, we've been, that was my opening class when we started the Protestant Catholic thing. We all begin with these beliefs and we're convinced that we're right. You know, what do you do? It, a major part of the Catholic Christian belief, tradition, is this um, quality of self-reflection, of questioning, so that we're, we just don't hold our beliefs blindly. We're able to reflect on them and give a, a rational account of them. So we're not just being formed by opinions or beliefs. We, we can give a certain defense. We can make clear why this is the truth, not an illusion, not a half-truth. So Plato said that um, one of the prisoners turns around to begin to question. That is, he doesn't just accept what he's seen. And that's the beginning of freedom, of self-knowledge. And you know that the image of that for him was Socrates. The, the story of Socrates was that he was described, he was told that he was the wisest man alive and he didn't believe it. He ran around talking to people to see why people said that about him. And he learned that, that um, in fact, he was the wisest man. But the, his understanding of that was very different from what it was for everybody else because he saw that he was wiser than other people because he knew he didn't know. And when he was going around asking people what they knew, he discovered that they claimed to know things. They really believed they knew things. But after he questioned them, he saw that they really didn't. They, he could, they couldn't answer his questions. And you know the result of that. They finally, they finally killed him. So the, the, the allegory of the cave is, a, is really an allegory of, of um, a growth in self-knowledge. That we really can't grow well, we can't become who we've been given to be if we don't reflect on our condition, to ask questions, to think about things. That's a risky situation, because very often questions can show we don't know something we think we do, and it can cause us to doubt. There were two conditions for this Socratic movement. One of them was called um, electus, which is a state of perplexity, and aporia, um, which was the, the wonder that moves you forward. This, both of these constitute the turn, the, what we call in the church of conversion. Electus and aporia. Puzzlement, perplexity. You, we've all been there. I mean, you, we think we have an answer to things and then somebody, um, somebody does something that makes us, that really leaves us puzzled. I remember a major one for me, a really a major one for me. 
When I was in graduate school, a friend had come from the Berkeley era, where, where Suzanne and I had first met, and I used to play a lot of tennis, and there was a, um, a couple that played, and a man and woman from different couples who used to play. This guy arrived, who was a friend of this guy who played in Berkeley, with a letter from him it, um, announcing his divorce. He got a divorce. And, and in the letter, his line was, I thought love was enough. My, my friend read that line to me. When I read that line, I was stunned, knocked over. I mean, honestly knocked over, because I always thought love was enough too. And I couldn't answer it. I thought if it's enough, then who's going to stay married? You know? What does love mean? But, and, and I think lots of people have that love is enough. Um, I could not answer it. it. It took me a while, and finally I did, and I realized what he understood by love is not what I understood by love. Because what I understand by love is going to a cross. I mean, that's at the center of our belief. And there's almost no support for that today. If anything discomforts you or you have to deal with hardships, you know. So that was a perplexing moment. I mean, that, I, I carried that perplexity for some time until I finally, you know, I don't know what questions I asked, but anyway, it's a moment of perplexity that's followed by a wonder that leads you to look beyond and discover new things. That's the way out of the cave. And I remember, remember we talked about how important justice was. That according to the ancient world, justice was a proper ordering of the soul, these three faculties, mm -hmm. reason, the appetites. And remember, the appetites go in two different directions, towards transcendent goods, the true, the good, the beautiful. Mm -hmm. Those are more universal, more intellectual. And the appetites which go towards physical things, food, drink, sex, physical comfort. Think about how materialistic our, our world is. Plato said, until reason rules the lower appetites by means of this middle element, the soul would be disordered. And it's this middle element, you can call it the heart, the affections, the love of nobler things, that makes man what he is. By the way, that's an argument from C.S. Lewis, too, in, in a book, book called um, Abolition of Man. It's a book you all should read. It's very thin. It, I think it's one of the most important pieces of Christian apologetics in the 20th century. It's that good. The great virtue of the ancient world was justice. For all of for all of the great pagans, Homer, Virgil, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all of them, the great virtue of the Old Testament is justice. According to the philosophers and the poets, justice meant um, giving another person what's due. It, 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 it implies a relationship between people. And Plato's argument was that we could never give another person his due if we didn't properly order our own souls. Because so long as our own souls were in disorder, we wouldn't be able to to fulfill that, giving what's due to another person. There'd always be something missing. Um, so that was the, the classical understanding. There was an element of love in it for Plato, this desire, this longing, as Plato describes it, for the good. It's what helped a person struggle to become just. So there was an element of love. But think about it. For Plato, what he's saying is, 
self-knowledge, learning to question yourself, to learn about yourself, the, the quest for self-knowledge, is sufficient to get you out of the cave. My belief is that he, what I would call an excessive intellectual, the, to, to give intellect that much power, that much credit, and I, I believe, this is me, I believe that's a, one of the dominant qualities of our modern world, the value we give the intellect. Um, what Christianity did is show is that our self-knowledge is not enough to get out of the cave. There's more going on in us as human beings. Christ had to come into that cave. But he didn't know that at the time. No. So that's, you can't fault him for that. No, I'm not faulting him. Okay. Not, <laughs> I'm, fault him. I, I'm not, I'm, if, I, if, if I'm being, how do I describe it? I'm assuming everybody's been here long enough to know how much I love Plato. I mean, <laughs> I've got serious questions about Plato. I think if you read Aristotle, you'll see that Aristotle corrects Plato in major ways. The master here is Aristotle. But I love these people. I, one of the reasons I don't like Milton a lot is because he doesn't like Homer. And um, what Homer and Virgil and these people did to me is extraordinary. Extraordinary. But, and they couldn't have seen it. They did not understand... Um, a divine love offered to man to help man recover the wholeness he was offered as a human being. So what happens when Christ comes into the cave is that two things now are resolved that before in the ancient world were seen as contradictions. Plato would have looked at love as only in human terms and found it wanting. Because there was no God. You didn't know a God. So what Christianity does is, you want, I mean, you can see this coming. What they do is take this wisdom of the ancient world and use it to help them understand Christ. There is, here's how much, I bet, there is no way the early church fathers could have come to understand Christ the way they did if they had not had that classical background. None. Because you watch all the heresies develop in those first four or five centuries, you watch the church fathers answer them, and, you, and you're watching St. Augustine love these, Homer, Virgil, particularly Virgil. Um, there's no way they could, none, without the education that that classical education gave them. But my point here is that two things merge now. And the, the reason for making it such a point now is that that's what we're experiencing in purgatory. It did not exist in hell. Hell is a place of justice. People wanted it, they got what they wanted. The people in purgatory are not less sinners. They are all in sin. But they want a mercy. They believe they believe that there's some things about themselves they don't understand, and they're offering themselves, they're, they're learning to see themselves more clearly and beginning to do penance for their sins. So the whole movement of purgatory, it, it entails a, a reconciling of law and love. Those are the two things in tension. Not one at the expense of another. Not justice and mercy separated. They're together. That's why you've been hearing me insist for all these years that the hardest task I think we face as humans is ordering our loves. It's so much easier to be compassionate. We've talk, talked about this. It's enabling. It's so much easier to be lawful. It's cruel. To bring those two things together that's at the heart of what Christianity is asking. And Christ is the one who did it. He went to a cross to fulfill a law and to offer a love that humans couldn't on their own. 
There's no way the pagans could have known that. It would have taken a god to do it. And because remember, what Christ is doing is answering a, a notion of sin that the pagans could not have known. Original sin. The original sin was against God. Milton knew it. Our original sin was against God. There's no way a man could have done it. It would have required a god to do that. Pagans could not have known. Even though I believe they, they have amazing intimations of it. I'm just amazed. Huh? Did, but, but they actually they did. I mean, there's a sense. Plato believed in a natural depravity, but he couldn't have understood where it came from or how to explain it. Anyway, that's where we were, okay? So, um, what we're seeing in the, in the movement from the Inferno to Purgatorio is a movement away from strict justice to a, a, a justice tempered by mercy. That people are entering into an, um, an action, a movement um, that is a, a, a purifying of their own souls, of becoming better. And what you're saying is that it's set into motion because of a person's willingness to question their beliefs or themselves or their. That's Plato. But y y yes, uh, I want to hold off on that. Because you're, you're, I mean, you're right on something. It's we're we're getting there in one second. If you to wait, Tracy, if I don't get to that in the next ten minutes, ask it again. Okay. <laughs> don't you don't forget. Okay, I'll try. Because I know I, <laughs> I might. Um, okay. This week. Okay. Okay. Here's 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 where something wonderful happens. That to me is stunning. Um, in the middle of the tur purgatory, remember I've told you that in the middle, middle of the purgatory, which is the middle of the Divine Comedy, Dante's going to have these discourses on free will and body and soul. They are fundamental to our understanding as Christians, where people get, romanticize them or play with them, they're in trouble. I, I'm sort of amazed because this is almost like a, le a cate catechetical lesson, what Dante's doing, even, even though I don't read it that way. but. He will give these amazing discourses. In the discourses, in one of them, he's going, he's going to refer to the nature of the soul, and he'll say, the soul has these three powers, if you want to call them. Memory, understanding, and will. That's Dante. He got that from St. Augustine. Okay? Now Dante, Dante's great master is St. Thomas, not Augustine. But he got that from Augustine. Uh, and we'll come to it. Um, but right now, I want I want to focus on the Trinity. You know, for a couple of weeks, I've been talking about the 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 ways in which the Trinity um, are embedded in the Commedia, the ways in which they give it a direction, a structure. I'm I don't know of any other way to talk about it, but I've tried to do everything I could to make you know to understand that that's not a mechanical thing for Dante. <coughs> that comes from his very bones. He's, he's not just imposing a technical a technique on a, his struggles to tell a story. He's doing it because it informs everything he does. And remember um, a couple of weeks ago I introduced you to St. Thomas as one of the most important ways in which St. Thomas looks at the evidence of the Trinity here, what he would call traces of it. Um, 
being, loving, and, uh, or sorry, knowing, sorry, being, knowing, knowing, and loving. Um, Every person in creation is being. He is being what he is, right? Because you can you can be alive and in a coma and not know, right? And not love. I'm trusting him, right? We can be. But for us to achieve the fullness of our being, we hope we have our powers of knowledge and of, of knowing and loving. Because if we do and we exercise them, we, we become a more complete human being. Yeah? So every person has knowing. Sorry, being. We are. Every person knows. He can know something. Every person loves. He can love something. Now, the origins of these three faculties, St. Thomas says, and I'm suggesting, um, is God. Because God is... He, said, he actually names it, I am that am, right? So God has being, that's his, that's his own name. I am that am. He is being itself. There is no other. He is completeness in himself, okay? He knows himself. The image of that knowledge, the concept of his knowledge, we understand as the Son. Because there can only be a person in God. There can't be anything. He's a person. So for him to know himself means another person. The image of himself, the concept of himself, is the son. He's begotten. So he's one with, he's, un, he's not created. Is everybody following? We've done this before. Okay? And the love between the two of them, father and son, is the spirit, another person. One God, three persons. Now this is crucial. And I gave you that quote from St. Thomas. Um, the father is not more or less, he's not less than the Son and the Spirit. The Father is as much the whole of the Trinity as the other two or any one of them. We want to compartmentalize it because if we say three, right, we say two is more than one. Am I going too fast here? But in the Trinity that can't be. Okay? The Father is not less than the other two persons or less than the Trinity itself. They have one essence in being. That means loving is not a part of the Father. It's not a faculty. It is Him. And the love is not a part of it. It's not less than the two others. It's the whole of it. Because the Father is, He knows, and He loves. Those are holes in themselves. Is that clear? We tend to you use mathematical numbers differently. Is that clear? But it's it's difficult. Well, but I always took the. I mean, the Trinity was always taught to me as number one, you can't understand it because it's beyond human comprehension. That was the first thing they teach you about the Trinity. Yeah. Okay. So to try and think about it as a human would be really futile. Well, but that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whatever they may be, is a way of mankind. Trying to put some sort of semblance so we can try and wrap what our minds around it a little bit. Yeah. So that's all well and good, but do I understand it? No. Here, well, I'm not gonna. You know me. I'm not gonna let it go there. Um, no. Wait, wait. Hold on. Nobody. I'm certainly not. I, I don't want. I don't want to take a position that it's not a mystery. But I've taken this position from Thomas and others. 
that every, every a mystery is only a mystery because it implies something more to be known because God is if anything in the world is intelligible anything, anything that is is intelligible it's God he is fully knowable because he's reason itself do we see it? hardly wait one second okay so I'll go this far it's a mystery I don't want to deny that but I don't want to deny what reason can do to also begin to penetrate it any more than St. Thomas or Augustine because they used what powers of reason they could to begin to make sense of it while they knew there was infinitely more to be known that their reason could not grasp the thing that I'm, I just want to get across right now is this notion of a wholeness in the Trinity the Father himself is not less than the whole of the Trinity or less than the Son and the Holy Spirit any more than the Son is less than the other two and I'm saying that because our habits when we think in terms of math is when you have three one is far less than the second and third you know it's less than two that's not so with the Trinity there's one essence they share it they're one and and to, to go there means we're moving beyond what reason can understand even though we can use reason that much and the reason I want to do that is because this is Thomas. I'm going to get to something that St. Augustine did that I think is going to open up purgatory in an amazing way. What makes it difficult is when you say Father, instinctively, you put an order to that. Son is beneath the Father. And I'm just saying why I said it was difficult because your instinct is right. an order there. Right. And here's, here's what Thomas would say. Look, um, if your frame of reference is human... And biological, you would say that. Yes. Okay. And this is so good. I'm glad David said because it's so right. If it's bio, in fact, one one of the major one of the major literary critics critics of our time uses an analogy of of human generation to deny the Trinity. But his model is human, not divine. Okay. Because we're not talking about humanness. We're talking about something infinite that can't be limited by a body, has no body, that's eternal, unchanging. Right? So we're, we're in two very... One's metaphysical. One's ontological, metaphysical. The other is physical. Um, Carl, did you have something? I think you answered it because I was going to ask if you take this three-pointed trinity, rotated one, now the sun's here, the sun is no less than right. the sum of the trinity. Right, okay. right. Remove another one. Right. The, the, the difficulty with that, that yeah, the, is that to do it makes it seem like parts. Put and we're back in a... Yeah. Put it on it's just hard to imagine it. But yeah. It's a lot easier to imagine it. <laughs> okay. okay. Then stay there. Good. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to recall that because it's, I, it's my way of asking everybody to make a jump here. But... Because we're leaving frames of reference that are human and physical and talking about something that's not physical, not bounded, infinite, eternal, unchanging. That, that makes it, what Christ did all the more remarkable, right? That he would have, fought, Paul says he did not claim equality. He's clearly speaking about Christ as a human. Because in the Trinity, he's equal. They're distinct by their relationship, Father, Son, but not in terms of equality. They all share the same essence. The Father, listen, the Father wasn't before the Son. 
The Holy Spirit and Son worked after the Father. That's why we say begotten, not made. They are one in being. They're distinguished by their relationship. If we stay too much in a human realm, we're going to miss some important things about the Trinity. See, I think when you say three persons in one, it's almost like dumbing it down. I don't know how else to say it. I know, but I'm saying when you do that, yeah. you have like three persons, right? and you go back to that order of physical, of human. But when you explain it the way you explained it, that's way beyond three persons. Just to, to, to make this harder, St. Augustine, this is really important, St. Augustine differed with the Greeks because the Greeks wanted to say three, subs, three subsistences. <laughs> and to do that, and because, because Father Flynn was right, you can't, God cannot be put in a genus. Cannot. Um, to say three subsistences means it's three different substances as if there's something containing them. Augustine knew the danger of that. He said, no, no, there's a danger because it's not three substances. It's three persons one in one, as one. That's why I used that, why I thought that quote from St. Thomas was so good. You know, the Father's not less than the, the whole of the Trinity. He, right? He's, he's a, the whole of it. He is. And he's not less than the Son and the Spirit. And neither is the Son. Okay, here, I want to go. I want to get on. Here's St. Augustine, one of his great images. St. Augustine said, memory, understanding, and will, or love. Now the reason I want to, I want to offer this tonight is for this. He said that memory is everything. It contains all things. Understanding um, has an object to know something. It refers to something else. So does the will. But all of them have the same relation to each other as each other as being, knowing, and loving. Memory is complete. Understanding is complete or, or knowing. And will is complete. Love. Each one is complete in itself. Now the reason I want to use this tonight is this. <laughs> I hope this takes us somewhere and I don't hear. I hope I don't leave everybody here. <laughs> Why does this even matter? It does it does matter. It does matter when we look at the purgatory. It matters a lot. When you go back to the ancient world, remember those of you who've been here for a while. How does each of the epic poems begin? Those of you who've been here. Like a disorder. Like a what? A disorder, right? Like a thing. Yes, but how, how, how does the action begin? What does Homer do to begin his, to deal with that disorder? How does Virgil begin? With a muse. With a, with a muse, right? Every ancient epic begins with an invocation. Right, we talked about that. Um, the poet is invoking the help of a goddess. Do you remember who she was, Beth? <laughs> Think of a merry-go-round. <laughs> I'm going to give you guys a quiz for sure. Would you really break? No, 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 no. It would be for a joke. Um, just so we can laugh together. 
every epic begins. This is so important. Just, it just it's, it's amazing if you look at it. Every epic begins with an invocation. Homer invokes the god Calliope. Remember? Calliope. <laughs> this is funny to me to say this. God, this is so distresses me. You know how much I love this stuff. When I was teaching English literature at UD, I was asking the class once whether we were to look at what Homer does in this invocation or Virgil or, you know, even Dante has invocations as a mere literary convention because that's the way the modern, it's the way the modern world dismisses God. This is a convention. It's a technique. And she's absolutely convinced this is just a technical thing because by our age, we look back and think these are conventions. You know, that's what poets did. Every epic poem begins with an invocation. Sing, muse, the anger of Peleus' son. Sing, muse, the man of many ways. Sing, muse, fate's fugitive. Indius, fleeing from Juno. Every one of them begins with an invocation. Who are the, who are the muses? Um, the muses were um, produced, sorry, by the mating of Zeus with Mimosine. What does Mimosine mean? Memory. Now stop and think about this here, just seriously for a second. What are the what are the poets saying? God, this is just amazing. Memory is where we go when we've lost something. Yeah, we think of Mary. I mean, Christ, the woman who looked for the penny. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I lost my keys. We reduce it that way. For the ancients, was memory reduced that way? If the muses are the product of the mating between Zeus and Mimosine, memory, which means a sort of cosmic mythic memory, it's saying that the, the muses are capturing all that ever was that was lost. That's exactly St. Augustine's understanding of memory. I mean, think about how, how horribly science's psychology has reduced memory. They absolutely lack any sense of a mythic quality to memory. If if the Christian fathers are right and we once had Eden, then memory at its most basic mechanical level means I forgot my keys, I don't know where I placed them, I left my glasses in the bedroom, or <laughs> Suzanne and I go and look at each other in the bedroom and say, now why do we come? We didn't even know what was going on three seconds earlier. That's how bad the memory's getting. <laughs> Some of you are too young. Carl, you're too young to know. <laughs> I'm saying that because I'm assuming it's more true because we've reached that age. Um, anyway, memory just isn't, I lost my keys. I want everybody to think seriously about this. If we had Eden one day, one time, and it's in our psyche, Jung said, all of us had this collective unconscious, this collective memory. If we all had Eden, it's in our psyche then um, by looking into memory to recover what we've lost is ultimately to go back to a completeness we once had that we don't even know we've lost anymore. What's purgatory? 
Purgatory is awakening. We forget that we forget. We, we, we become so um, convinced that we're self-sufficient that we can get on on our own. We don't need anybody because we're so capable, right? Reason so capable. We think we can get along. We go through the world. And then suddenly we have these moments where we realize something's wrong. We've been doing this all for years and years in the literature because every literature reaches a turn where something happens and the hero knows something's wrong. Am I going too fast? All of us had this experience, right? We have moments of conversion where, where something happens. We can be thinking we're doing everything right and then suddenly we get news or we see something and suddenly we realize things are not right at all. Our son's on drugs. Son's drinking. You know, um, an infidelity in the family, whatever. You know. And we realize things are not the way we see them. It's that abrupt moment in the cave. So for St. Augustine, memory didn't just mean losing our keys. It was that power that we turned to to recover what we had lost in a mythic world, that completeness that we all had in Eden. Am I going too fast? Understanding. So if these three, if these three qualities, memory, understanding, and will, they're like being, reason, and love, they're all complete in themselves, just like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Memory is everything. It's that wholeness we once had. Understanding is that way we related to the world then. We didn't analyze it. We didn't turn another person into an object. He, she. We beheld, adored, wondered. Hmm? We didn't just will, I want this bike. We loved. We were one with another. Every one of those things represents the whole. The same way being, knowing, loving. Memory was everything. Understanding was the whole of it. Loving was the whole of it. Um, so those three faculties for St. Augustine represented the workings of the Trinity in our character. Now, what's going on in Eden? I'm sorry, what's going on in Purgatory? Watch this. As the souls move up level by level by level, what's happening? They're returning to that condition of completeness that they once had, that they lost. They're beginning to wonder. They're beginning to love. They're beginning to relate to each other differently. What's the result of it? At the end of the Purgatorio, Dante's going to return to earthly paradise. Who's going to greet him there? Beatrice, and it's going to be like a, it's going to be like a, a church mass. Beatrice is going to come with a griffin, with all the images of the New Testament, Old Testament, the sacraments. The whole of the Mass will be there because that will be the moment when Dante begins to return immediately to God and the wonder that human beings had in the garden. So Purgatory is not just a mountain. Wait, wait, just hold, hold on, Mark, one second. Purgatory is not just a mountain. It, like, Clay, Cato is a historical man. Allegorically, he's also an image of the sternness that human beings need to turn from their sins. The mountain is a mountain, but it's also an image of the struggle that goes on daily in every human being to recover what we've lost. That is, it's a way of awakening us to the fact that we've forgotten that we forgot.
that we lost it. So, so purgatory in one sense is this gradual awakening that happens when faith becomes more and more alive, not mechanical, becomes more part of a person's being, it changes the way he relates to everything in the world. So this is not just saying your rosary mechanically, it's not just, it's not mechanical, it, it is an action that involves a, involves a growth in self-knowledge, in knowledge of others, and a love that draws them together. Towards the end of the, the beginning of the Paradiso, when we leave the, the mount here to leave Eden and go into the heavens, Dante and Beatrice are going to be talking to me. Beatrice is going to be teaching Dante like, like Virgil. She's going to know Dante's mind before he thinks <clears> of <throat> it. And he's going to reach a point where he knows what's going on in her before she says it. Why? Because they are indwelling in each other exactly the way the persons in the Trinity do. Is God separate from the Son? He's distinct from Him. Absolutely not. They indwell in each other. Remember, Father is as, is as whole as the Trinity itself. So is the Son, or the two together. So what we're watching are human beings recover the oneness that they once had. It changes the way they relate to each other. Um, they indwell the way they understand each other. Um, who they are themselves. When you say that that they once had, does that include before you were born? What I what we once had by that I mean the the Eden the oh remember what what to put it this way David I hope I haven't misled everybody remember what I'm talking about is what happened in Genesis that what we all once had was a garden and I've, I've been trying to make this point that in all the lyrics that we've been reading the poems that we've been reading. There's the sense that we've lost something, this garden. The, what's the topos, the, the major image of most lyric poetry? The garden, love, of one for another. That's the action of the lyric poem. Because and Jung, when he said we have, he and, he, he, he and Freud separated on this issue. Jung said we have this collective unconscious. Freud said we have this polymorphous perverse that we're all depraved. Mm -hmm. Jung said no. We have this collective unconscious. We, we all carry it in us. It's a part of our psyche. What he's saying is, the garden's in us. Well, there's okay. a, a, a major laureate um, poet said, one of the greatest influences in our life is this memory of the garden. It haunts us. We all want to live forever. Every one of us does not want to die. I think I'm speaking for most of us. We want to live. We don't want to die. We're haunted by this garden. We we believe that we believe that death is an injustice. We want to live. We once had this thing, and we want to return to it. Why are we reading this literature otherwise? So, the movement of purgatory is, in a sense, an awakening to the fact that we're learning to see that we forgot that we forgot. We're learning to see that, become more aware, and gradually, ledge by ledge, um, we we take on a different way of seeing. We become more whole, and as we do, we do that with each other. It changes the way we are, the way we love, the way we act. And, and remember, another remember what's on the basis of it? Humility, humility, and faith. And it, um, sorry, Tracy, what we're going to learn? Let's see, what's your question? Give me your question quick. That this uh, uh, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, here. I've got it. Put in motion. Yeah. Nothing happens in any of this that doesn't have its first cause in God. Remember, Odysseus wanted to go up that mountain on his own. What Dante makes clear is nobody begins purgatory on his own. The first initiative, all God's the first cause of love. He's the first, Dante will make this clear shortly, he's the first cause. Nobody goes up the mountain without God. He's the first cause. So God somehow is working in our lives. This is really good. Here's what I want to say. We always think when we get to that moment of saying, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to go to church or take, you know, take the sacraments or whatever, we think, that's us. Dante would say, where does that come from that makes a change? Because we're, saying, we're still the same person we were 20 minutes before. St. Augustine and Thomas would say, there's a moment of illumination. It's, it's like for a moment we're making a place for the Spirit. And the question is, are we receptive? Will we give ourselves to it? But the first initiative in penance back to God is always from Him. We're going to see that in a minute. Is there a difference between for Don, the people in Dante's uh, story in hell and in purgatory are that they receive. The people in purgatory receive that motion. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it helps them to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they receive it or did they deserve it? Well, Sorry? Did they receive it or did they deserve it? What did we just say in this Christ coming into the cave? Did he come because we deserved him? No. Mm-hmm. Well, but the other people are just as capable of receiving all over they're riding But they didn't. Yeah, that's they the didn't. Thing. They chose other than to receive it. Remember, there's an allegorical element to this because remember, the virtuous pagans did not sin. They're not being punished. They're there. It's, way, it's Dante's way of showing that virtue is virtue is an objective. The modern world has subjectivized everything. Dante's saying there's an objective truth. The virtuous pagans are virtuous. They're good. They're not being punished, but they're not in heaven because heaven is a supernatural condition. Nobody can get to heaven without God's help. The first initiative is, is his. The question is, are, are people hearing him receive it? Those of you who did the Odyssey, remember, go back to the Odyssey. Were the suitors or the cyclops or the maidservants, did any of them hear the gods speaking to them when the gods came to warn them? Not once. The, the only figure in that, I mean, one of the major figures who was open to the gods was Odysseus, who was his mentor. Who is Odysseus's mentor? Tracy. (laughs) Yes, you do. I know you do. Athena, goddess of wisdom. Who who is the mentor of of Aeneas? Aphrodite. A huge change. The goddess of love. Because love was behind the founding of Rome in a way that would have never been with Athena. Does that mean I love her less? No, I don't. <laughs> I love all of those. Listen, here, just to the interesting thing. When Mimosine and Zeus made it and produced the muses, how many were there? Nine. nine. What's nine a multiple of? Three. <laughs> Where did they get all this stuff? What did he say? Are you glad? glad? <laughs> somebody spare me right now. <laughs> Either somebody sit on him or come up here and help me. 
I missed you last week, and I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I missed you last week. Okay, let me stop. Any, I want to turn to the book. Sorry for so, but this stuff is so amazing to me. Yeah? No? Gita, do you have a question? No. Come on, I know you do. I think like Mark, there are parts that I struggle with, and you know, I need to process this information. This is too much? I don't know how else to do it, sorry. <laughs> well, fire hose works. You, you guys put up with me this long, is it amazing? But I struggle much more with Purgatory and Paradise than I do with Inferno. I'm much more trying to understand it. Yeah, I, I'm just as reading and listening it, it, as I struggle, it's much easier for me to understand yeah. Inferno than it is Purgatory Paradise. No, because it's I think it's more objective. It's more clear cut to very me. Very much so. Very much. Yeah, so. but Purgatory's got a lot of nuances in it. I've told you before when we when we get to the Paradiso, it's going to be very very intellectual. It's of, of the canto or the canticles. It's going to be the hardest. Just, just quick a reminder, and remember, we're supposed to see this on two levels. We're supposed to see it literally. Dante's taking this journey, but there's an allegorical element. I, I don't. If we read um, Cato as just this stern, unpleasant guy, we don't see how essential that sternness is for what you know, or the memory. What I'm talking about with memory, what's actually happening as we go up, we're just missing. It, it's literally there. We cannot change the literal level. I, I don't ever. I don't want to play with that myself. But it's important that we also see that there's another. Remember the allegorical method. There are other levels of meaning in the literal, and it's important to hold on to them. There's an action going up purgatory. Now here's what we're going. I'm just briefly because I want to get into the text. Every level has goads, checks, and blessings. The beatitudes and prayers. What are the goads? As the, as the penitents go up, this is, I hope, Mark, I hope this helps. It's, it's part, this, I mean, I want to do this, but it's partly in response to your, um, your statement a minute ago. Um, at every level, the penitents are seeing images of the virtue opposite the vice. Because remember, they're trying to change themselves. Um, they're trying to change. This is going to a big conclusion. I mean, remember, we're Catholic Protestant. I mean, I, I haven't lost sight of that. It's very much on my mind right now. Um, they have images of the goads. The goads are an image of the virtue opposite pride. What's the virtue opposite pride? Yeah. Humility. humility. Yeah. Who is the most perfect human example of humility? Mary. Mary. She'll be the first goad. By the way, every on every level, she'll be the first one because... Mary exemplifies every virtue that, that's opposite every vice. So at every level, the first goad will always be Mary. Whatever the sin is, she's answered it. The checks are images of the vice itself. Why are they there? Because as humans, going through our lives, we need goads. We need prodding, pushing. We're weak by ourselves, and we need checks. I'm going to look at them in a minute. Um, and every every level has a blessing, a beatitude. That when a person completes the penance on that level, um, he receives a blessing. 
he's entering into the Beatitudes that I just read. What I've just described, this this growing into wonder, a recovery of our wholeness, however you want to put that, that the movement up purgatory is a recovery of that wholeness that we once had, depends on our humility, how willing we are to give ourselves to the grace that God's offered, um, and change. So what's Dante showing us in, the, in, in image of the goats and image of the checks? He's showing us exactly what goes on every day of our life. We're surrounded by people who image vices. We know them. If we're not going, I don't want to do that. I want to go the opposite way. Then we're missing a good God is giving us. If we don't see images of people who are surrounded by people who do good things, if we're not saying, I want to do that. It's like our ego or our pride or our envy gets in the way of saying, I want to do that. What's the response in the commercial regime when we see somebody doing good and getting rewarded? Envy, pride. Is everybody following? Mm-hmm. Purgatory is, is as a mountain. That what, what its image is, is life itself. That life is filled with goads and checks. Do we see them? Are we awake? Are we too self-centered? Thinking we've got all the answers. I already know what God's doing. Are we really learning? Day by day. Changing. And are we entry, are we recovering that wholeness, the, the, the beatitudes that become more part of our life? That is, are we um, detaching ourselves from the worldliness of the world and the worldliness that people take on? Dante is going to use that word in the first couple of cantos. Um, we're going to get there. We still have time. Sorry. Um, yeah. So. Even though it seems very structured, clearly, I mean, remember, this is an allegory. It's a story of Dante's, I mean, I believe it's real, but it's also allegorical. It's an image of our, the mountain is an an image of the hardships that we have to take on day by day is like climbing a mountain. Mm -hmm. Any of us who try to take on our sins Mm. know how hard it is. But that's our call. That's what purgatory is. Let me stop now before we turn to the text. Any, David? When you said you, cl- you, they're, you just, yeah, they're, they're climbing levels, do those levels have names? Well, they're they, they're identified with each of the sins. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, oh, that yes, okay, I didn't see that. Okay. Remember, once he once he enters Saint Peter's Gate and the and the guardian, we're going to go there. The guardian says, "Do not look back." The sinners, no whining, no crying. Cato is there. That is, we, we have to call on that Cato to say, get rid of our pride, envy. Okay. And, and what Dante's going to say, we're going to read it in a minute. When you climb this mountain, the higher you get, the easier it gets. When you climb a physical mountain, if we're back in the physical the harder, world. The harder it gets. <laughs> sure. Right? The oxygen. The higher you get, it, the harder it is. Yeah. Here, the more you become relieved of your sins, the more... at peace, the more at one you are with nature, with others, with God. So it gets easier and easier to make the climb. Do you think, do you think Cato was kind of gruff and scary because, I mean, we're all taught that knowledge starts with fear of the Lord, so Cato had to be kind of, again, fearing. 
<laughs> I think that's probably a good connection. Yeah. I mean, we've got to we've got to see that something is serious enough to be a little bit afraid of because by ourselves, our weakness I, I just think are too strong. Right. That's why you know, knowledge starts with fear of the Lord. Yeah. And remember, it also starts with I mean, with wonder. Knowledge be- begins with, but wonder and fear. Robert, the order of these things are worst to least worst. Oh wait, no, sorry. Let me come back. But the other thing that I wanted to say, I don't want to forget, is there's a strict um, sequence. Dante knows that it doesn't. I mean, we may want to take on our pride and then our envy, but Dante knows we're taking on all of these things every day. There are some days when lust is going to be a greater issue. There's some day when sloth. I don't want to do. I don't feel like doing anything. <laughs> That these, that these things are not structured in our life. We can take them on that way, but Dante is a realist enough to know. This is a story of showing the gravity of what we're facing. And the, the more we get rid of pride, the more easy it will be to get rid of envy, because pride's behind every one of these. So is envy. Pride gets, all these, these spiritual sins get carried out. The more pride we have, the more likely we are to be lustful in the wrong way for ourselves. But the more we tackle pride, the easier the others will become. The more humble we become, the easier it is to take on the others. Robert, the top is lust. Yeah. Could you make that legible? What's the matter with your eyes? <laughs> Get <laughs> Get <laughs> I What is the matter with you guys? <laughs> Well, it doesn't look like lust. No. <laughs> the two of you stop. I know the two she of you. She didn't both. start it. She's merely carrying it on. Lust. Better. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> any, 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 questions? Or re- any other requests? <laughs> I uh, see purgatory as the gray area. You have hell as black, you have paradise as white, so that's the gray area. Yeah, I have, I, I personally, I have trouble look, myself looking at it that way. Well, I'm just saying if you... I know, I know exactly. Because you, you, no, you're saying sure. this is two opposites. I know, I know, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Gray's fitting. Chesterton once says that what defines the Catholic Church is that there's no gray, it's, you know... I would want to say that the, the purgatory is a a rose bright you know that this is a this the thing that's going to define this is joy at every level Dante's going to encounter people singing prayers are sung this is a place of joy people are not I'm only because gray tends to have a well no the more white with your gray, it's lighter and lighter and lighter. I know, I'm just I know. saying, if you're looking at an artist's palette, you know. I know, <laughs> I know, I know, because it's. Oh, yeah. But, I, but I'm Good, offering something else here. That <laughs> when you look at purgatory, particularly when you leave hell, which is such a dark place, and heaven's going to be full of light, when you look at what's going on in purgatory, it, it is rose colored, it is full of light and song. People are joyful, and they're dancing, you know, they're. There's, I mean, they're suffering. They're taking on penance, but they're carrying a joy with them, a gladness, um, because they they really they've come to see their sins as they are. And they say good mark. What they now? Because they're not in hell. <laughs> 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 good luck. Give, Suzanne. Hallelujah. 
Give your response. Yeah. I, did you say this to this group about father or priests or people when they pray for poor souls? And oh, I just when you go to church and people make their own, you know, the intentions. There was this one guy in church every single day. He would he would pray for the poor souls in purgatory, and I kept thinking, what's poor about them? They're in purgatory. They're not in hell. These be glad. Be glad. Yeah. It's, it's in purgatory. Half, is your glass half full or half empty? <laughs> no. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Maybe One of him is enough in this classroom. <laughs> no. But I'm the outlaw, so it's okay. No. No. Actually, no, you're not. You make the best meatballs in the world. <laughs> but the souls in purgatory, they understand that there's grace being given to them. Yes. Suffering. Not a moment when they, they don't. They know that grace. And, yep. and the suffering is hell. In hell, it's like for nothing. Oh. It's just suffering. Yeah, it's never relieved. It's just the. Yeah. Well. But here there's grace yep. associated. So they, they rejoice in the grace that they're. Not poor souls. But I remember as a they're child saying poor souls in purgatory. No, no. Remember, we're not. We're not. places to be. Yes. We're, yeah. <laughs> now I know that. <laughs> we're not in a condition rejoicing yet. You know, that'll come with a paradiso. I mean, then, then you're in bright lights. and So there's a gray aspect, you know. Um, but, but don't forget that the people are here glad. They're singing. They're, so we're not rejoicing yet. But there's an element of that. It's not, it's not in its fullness. But everybody carries it. It's what moves them on. Um, let's turn to the text. You're here graduation classes from Purgatory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the class of 2085 graduating from Purgatory. <laughs> no, but no, in old school, I think they really... They did, they, they did. did. Yeah. You know why? Because there's maybe an element where well, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. That's right. So they had to have... An in-between. An in-between. Yeah. I'm of with you. Old, it's kind of an old school thing. It is. It is. We've got... Well... <laughs> <laughs> um, our middle son, Christopher, I think you, some of you are aware of what's going on, but their kids are in a covenant school, and um, they were describing, um, I think this summer, sometime or fall, a camp meeting in which the people were, whoever was leading them was saying, mm -hmm. you know, if you had to meet with God right now, would you, I think it was something like this, would you see yourself as being in heaven or hell? And it just stumped, I mean, you know, it was a hard. And I think it was Charlotte, the, the middle girl, who said, I was so, pr so proud of her. She said, neither. I see myself in purgatory. I, I don't think that, no, I mean, it must have shocked that whole, that whole group. Purgatory, are you? Get that heretic out of here. And I want, and I, we had to talk about it that night. I said, I just, I'm so thankful for her, so grateful for her that she had the humility, you know, to, Hanging and out with Grandpa too much. <laughs> <laughs> what is the covenant? But I said, you know, don't ever forget that because in some sense that's an indication of, of God's mercy at work in the world. Um, there is a hell. It's real. But and by the way, um, the reading this last this last weekend from the Old Testament was Cain killing Abel. God comes to him and exiles him. You remember that? And and Cain says to him. I will be a wanderer the rest of life. Somebody's going to murder me. The most stunning. I, there wasn't me. anybody to murder me. 
Yes, there was. His, his nephews were coming up. No, no. His nephews, I don't, I'm not going to give into this. His, That's why it's a wonderful story. The door. There's one in every class. The, you know, there's two now. What do you mean? Who with him? Who? <laughs> Have you guys met Eve and Adam? <laughs> I got to stop. I have to stop. The most amazing, what actually, a man came up to me today saying exactly that. He said, it's always troubled me. I don't want to go into the answer because I want to get to the text. But he said, there's nobody around to kill him. I, I, I took five minutes in answering that. And it's a wonderful creation story. Oh, God. That's all it is. With an extraordinary truth to it that's literal. Hold on. Mark, be still. For, no, you be still. Be still for a minute. Be still. No, be still for a minute. Um, one of the most amazing things about that Genesis story, because as you all know, Genesis is has a literal quality to it, but a mythic quality. And if you separate them, you're in trouble. Real trouble. It has both. I mean, that's the nature of Genesis. What What's startling, one of the most startling parts of that opening is God saying to Cain, Cain said, I'm be a wanderer. Somebody's going to kill me. God did not say, I don't know he's around. He wouldn't have said what he said if there weren't a real threat to Cain. He said, um, he put a mark on him and said, nobody will kill you. He just, Cain just killed his brother. I think most people would say, deserves death. God says, nobody's going to touch you. What an amazing expression of mercy at the outset of Genesis. How many people, we, we've got to reread Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, and we're going to do, I think we're going to do Anthony Cleopatra, I've decided. Is there, is there I mean, to, at the very outset of the, of the Old and New Testaments, right at the beginning, a man just commits murder. God does not kill him. He sends him into exile. What that says about our God Turn to the book quickly. <laughs> what does this, what does this relationship show us? I went through this last time. I don't want to go through it again. Casella, remember, just got off the boat, so we can put. He's new. Okay, Manfred, we know, is in the excommunicated. We have degrees of late penitent. Remember. Biocondi was the guy who um, got killed at the very end, and as he was breathing his last breath, he called out Mary. Yeah, yeah. Remember, and the angel, the dark angel comes to get him, the black angel, black and white, and the white angel comes to save him, and, and then we get the preoccupied. You know from the Iliad, those of you who've been here and watched the battles, or the Odyssey, it doesn't matter what story, the poets, poets are always revealing an order to something to what looks like the messiness of life, that things are messy. They're always revealing something there that so often we miss. So what's Dante showing us here? From the shores where he meets Casella, Cato scolds them, they have to run off. Virgil's downcast, remember he's so embarrassed. And then you meet all these souls. I'm gonna just take a minute with one of them and then I wanna, hold on, because I wanna get us back in the book. Turn to, um, just for a second, Sordello. Um, page 226, it's, it's Canto 6. 
because I, I, I just want to get in on Sorry, it's taken so long. Um, 226, they meet Sordello in the middle of the page, line, seven, or line 75. O Manchulin, I am Sordello of your own town, and the two shades embraced, he and Virgil. Virgil has to make clear how he can be there, and when Dante makes clear that he's in the body, Sordello is shocked. Wonder, full of wonder. And, and the whole question is, how could God violate those laws? And it makes it clear once again, Dante's showing us, we can't put God in compartments. God is always surprising us. Um, down at the bottom of 226, O wretched Italy, search all your coasts, probe to your very center. Can you find within you any part that is at peace? What matter of Justinian repaired the bridle? Justinian is the one who made that code of law at the beginning of our church. The bridle, if the saddle, read this closely now, if the, if the saddle's empty now, the shame would have been less if he had not. You priests, who should pursue your holiness, remembering what God prescribed for you? Let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown viciously wild? Without the rider's spurs, there's Cato again, the rider's spurs to set her straight. Since you dare take the reins into your hands, you priests, O German Albert, Emperor, you abandoned her, allowing her ungoverned to run wild. You should have been astride her saddlebow. Let a just settled judgment fall from the stars upon your house, one unmistakable and strange enough to terrify your heart, your heir. You and your sire, whom greed for greater wealth holds back up there, have let this come to pass. The garden of the empire is laid waste. Go down, come, heartless one, come see your noblemen who suffer. Noblemen. Help them heal their wounds. Come see how safe it is to dwell in Santafire. Come see your city Rome in mourning now, widowed, alone, lamenting night and day. My Caesar, why have you abandoned me? What's that an echo of? Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. Except here, Sardell is using it to refer to the emperor, Caesar. What's being said here? What's the problem with that? Corrupting. We're going to see it again and again and again in Dante. And this was written back in the 13th? Mm -hmm. I believe it's contemporary. Back, I mean, back for where the, was that, the Pope was in France at that time, right? Or was they established back in the... Yeah, but I think he's dealing with a more general situation here. Albert, where are you? Where's the emperor? Let... Let Caesar take the saddle as he should. You priests who should pursue your holiness with. The church has got too much influence. Here, let me do. The church has got too much influence. And when it does, Dante is going to use this image later. The, he's saying the, the Pope, the priest, should um, chew the cud. That is, they should be meditating. Their business should be on God. What's Caesar's business? Running the empire. Given to Caesar what Caesar that is rule the body in the temporal order. When laws become lax, what happens to a nation? Hmm. What's happening today? Yeah. God. Get a president in power whose whole mode of operandus is compassion and undermining the laws? What happens to any country? What Dante is lamenting, oh, oh, come, my Caesar, why have you abandoned me? Caesar. He's saying, without an F, somebody who can put the spurs, to, since you dare take, 
without the right or spurs. That is, the church has become so powerful, so influential in the world, and it doesn't have the political bite. When that happens, when two powers don't rule in their separate realms, we've got chaos. So Sordello is giving this invective, this diatribe against the church in being too worldly. We're going to see this again and again and again. Remember Guido? Guido remember Eliot's quote from Guido? Because this is going to come up in a minute when Dante gets to St. Peter's Gate. That when the church becomes too active and it doesn't make the distinction, it gets in the way. Um, what did Pope John Paul say under his papacy? To the church university, he said to all the priests, get out of politics. That was from John Paul. Because he, he, he was seeing what was going on. It's not the church's place to rule, given to Caesar, what Caesar's given a body. It's Caesar's place. The church has its own end. It's our, the salvation of our souls. It's got to work in its own order. Um, go, go on. Go to the gates. I'm going to get there just for a minute so we can open some things, because I'm the last five minutes in this time. Go to... Um, um, wait, what's the order here? Sorry, what's the order? Excommunicated... Late repentant, too preoccupied. The princes before he gets the scene. What's the relate? What's Dante showing us by that order? Here, what's what's beautiful? This is so good. When we, you know, when we read it, we're reading individuals, right? They're telling their stories, right? And so we can treat them discreetly. This one, this one, this one, this, and completely miss the sequence. If we miss the sequence, we're missing the meaning. No matter what's going on, what's Dante showing us in this relationship between these people? Excommunicated, excommunicated, languid, what's the word, negligent? Um, Preoccupied and negligent. Indolent is the word. It's um, um, excommunicated, negligent, indolent, lazy, um, without confession. Late repent, remember, like Gio Conte dies. They, they didn't take care until the very end in their life. Pia was, I mean, the, the woman too, the saint. These are lives that were cut off at the end. What's Dante showing us by that, by that sequence? Tracy, what's he showing us? The only thing I can think is there are kind of levels of self sufficiency. Can you really? Yeah. Can you relate that to what you said about, um, how did you put it, a person's openness to receive God's grace? Well, if you're self-sufficient, you don't think you need anything. And so there's not an openness. Yep. And if you're excommunicated, you're actively, yep. you know, acting against. Good, yeah. Is everybody clear? When we read it, they're all discreet. I mean, we just read them. But if you look at what's happening, Dante's showing us that they're where they are, according to the responsibility they took to being open to God. They're, by the way, have these people started penance? No. They're outside. They, that is, all of them showed an unwillingness to start changing their lives. And they're separated from St. Peter's Gate in proportion um, to how responsible they were to beginning to change themselves. Well, then what's the difference between anti-purgatory and hell, then? 
Oh, oh God. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm just saying these, these sound like... These What's the difference? Well... No, you tell me. What's the difference between hell and you already know that. What's the difference between anti-purgatory and purgatory in hell? Well, I realize hell, there's, there's no change, whatever, and they're stuck. Right. They got their just rewards. Or Are they going to get out? They're not going to get out. Are these people going back to hell? No, but the anti-purgatory, you, you can go to the gate of purgatory. I mean, is there, mm -hmm. is, there's a pathway. Because yeah. yeah. it sounds like it's pretty grim, though. It's mm. long, but it's not. It's a longer pathway. Yeah. Remember, and, and when he comes here, he says that because he held himself out, the length that he's going to, the time that he, remember, purgatory, this is interesting. I mean, it's a good, purgatory is a place of justice and mercy. Justice got to be answered. If you've been unwilling to do something, should you be able to get there? Or do you have less to take on in yourself or more than somebody else has been here? more, obviously. Right, so. It's like a development of a longing that you lack. Yeah, and yeah, and a willingness. I mean, your words earlier. The, the souls here are going to do 30 times their time while they're here. I mean, it's, so it's going to be delayed. So because they put it off in life, they've got to bear that now. People who are more willing to give themselves to try to be better human beings. Well, then who, who shows them the way to do that, though? They know, in fact, remember, they know coming to purgatory. I mean, it's as if it's understood. I'm not okay. sure how to do But Sordello is going to show Dante and Virgil the way, even though he's not going up there. He can show them the next level. So they all know that there's they another. They all know that. And okay. All right. I get it. Go to the gate. I, I want to get just put these out as principles. 244. What canto? Nine. Two things, and then I want to leave here because. You're at 243. 243. Talk 243. Virgil and Dante come to the Valley of the Princes who were too preoccupied. Here, everybody. Mm -hmm. the, the princes were good men. Okay? Purchase people, but they were too preoccupied. They didn't take, so they're here. So they're the ones closest to the gate. Um, they come to the Valley of the Princes, and Dante and Virgil are told they can't go any farther. They have to sleep for the night, and they go to sleep. When Dante wakes up in the morning, he's at the Gate of St. Peter's. On page 243, Virgil's describing what happened. Before the break of day, while your soul slept within your body, still at rest below upon the flowers of that painted glen, a lady came. She said, I am Lucia. Come, let me take this man who lies asleep. I wish to speed him on his journey. Sardello and the other shades remained. She took you in her arms at break of day. So they know. I mean, Valerie, this is... They know. I mean, they can't just... They're clear. The, the rule of the mountain is God's got the first initiative. You, you, you open yourself to him and you can't move when the sun goes down because the sun's an image it's just an image of the grace that you have to learn to work with so Della and the other shades remain she took you in your arms I followed her they went up um, go down this is so so good as one who first perplexed is reassured and feels his fear replaced by confidence once what is true has been revealed to him such was the change in me and when he saw me free of care, my leader made his way up and along the bank with me behind. 
Reader, you see how lofty is my theme. You should not be surprised if now I try to match its grandeur with more subtle art. So in one sense, it's not gray. This is a grand... Grace has entered the world, and this is the beginning of a beauty. It's the beginning. There's still, you know, it's not complete, but it's the beginning of something, this great wonder that's going to unfold. Um, I slowly raised my eyes. I saw that he was um, sitting on the highest step. His face too splendid for my eyes. I looked. He can't look at the guardian. Too bright. Um, so, how does Dante get to the gate? Unconscious. Just as he would was when he crossed the Acheron. The first steps into hell were unconscious. You, we don't know those motions of sin in us when we're young. The first motions into penance are the same. God is at work somewhere. That grace is given. Um, he's the first initiative. He's on, Dante's only here because God wanted, and he. So we have to see when he started to climb that mountain, whether he knew it or not. <clears throat> that was a longing in him from God. What was missing is that he didn't. He thought he could do it himself. He comes to the, ste um, the steps, 244, the gate. White marble was the first and polished in the glaze, polished with the glaze of a looking glass. I saw myself reflected as I was. The second one was deeper dark than purse, black of rough and crumbling fire, corroded, fire corroded stone with cracks across its surface, length and breadth. The third one lying heavy at the top appeared to be a flaming porphyry, red as the blood that spurts out from a vein. He has to cross those three steps. Allegorically, what do those three steps mean? Trinity? Hmm? Trinity? Three? I mean, I think that I, I'm going to have to... It's got to be something of the Trinity there, but... Chester, do you have something? No, I was saying first you look at yourself. Right. Then you got your trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one, you've made it. Like a purging, you know, you look at yeah. yourself, oh. and then you see your darkness, and then you purge. It's like because it says it's spurting out. You take you take this purifying fire on yourself. Oh. So it, there are the stages of confession. Yeah, you we yeah. go to confession to acknowledge our sins, to see ourselves as we are, right. the blackness. So to clear men, to see ourselves as we are. Remember the humility that's required for all of this. To acknowledge our sins, and then to take on the burdens cross of undoing them. And remember all of this is with Christ's help. Um, and then, this is what happens. Um, <clears throat> 244 at the bottom. Falling down at his holy feet, in mercy's name I beg to be let in. But first of all, three times I smote my breath. Breast, this is what we do in the Mass. I'll strike your breath. Through my, fall, through my, my most grievous fall. And with his sword he traced upon my brow the scars of seven eyes once entered here, peace, sorry. Be sure you cleanse away these wounds, he says. That's his task. Now, set this against all other epic heroes. Dante's task is to mind his business to answer his sins. Ashes or earth when it's dug up dry, this was the color of the robes he wore. He reached beneath him and drew out two keys. One was silver and the other gold. First he applied the white one and then the yellow with that, the gate responded to my wish. They opened, and he was admitted. Now, what are those two keys? This is crucial. One gold, the other yellow. 
Sorry? Yeah, what do they need? By the way, you all know it. Mark, explain it. Where are we? But I mean, you're the, the reference from Scripture. Oh, well, he's a delicate, he's a to Peter. He's to Peter to open the gates of heaven. To bound and loosen. Mm -hmm. Right. Remember, he said, so "Whatever is bound, whatever you bound on right. right. and heaven, yeah. Yeah. Now apply that. Any, anybody to these two keys? The, a golden e and a. Yeah, there's got to be. A, I, I don't. One silver, the other gold. There's got to be a reason. For yep. Yep. Remember, those keys were given to Peter. So this is St. Peter's Gate. It's the entrance into purgatory. It, it, Christ, we went through that passage, remember, where he gives him the keys. And Christ gave Peter this extraordinary authority. Extraordinary. Because he knew what Peter would be dealing with in the world. I mean, we've been dealing with in every piece of literature, our human nature and how fallen it is. Nothing less than that authority would help. Here, a big thing is made up. One is gold and one is silver. What's the difference? And it goes back to that scriptural passage to, to bind and loosen. The gold one is the church's authority. It's the authority that Christ gave Peter, which, which obviously is an extraordinary authority. And if we think about our human... Go back for a second to our work where we began, the Protestant Christian, you know, where we started... Look at all the heresies. Go back to the beginning of the church and look at all the heresies that the church had to deal with. Would they have been able to deal with any of it if they hadn't had that authority and the help of the Spirit? No way. I mean, the church would have gone a million different ways. Christ would have been Arian, Sabellian. It could have been dozens of things. Any, anything but Christ as we know so one of them is the authority of the church that Christ gave, and it's extraordinary authority. The other one, the silver, is the, the church's power to apply that in particular cases. Now, now think about how important it is. Go back to Canto 27. In 27, it's, by the way, the, 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 um, the epigram to Prufrock, remember from Dante, that Italian, was from Guido, whose story was the Pope wanted Guido's advice on how to defeat a Catholic family. The Pope Boniface went to war with his Catholic fan family, so he's doing battle against Catholics and supporting, in, in, as Dante presents it, the Jews and the Muslims. And it was forbidden at that time by the church for any of the church members to have any commerce with the Muslims because they were seen as heretics. Boniface made this agreement with Guido that he would absolve him of his sins if he told him how to defeat this Catholic family. So he went into confession, not with penance, but because the Pope granted it, as if it were a mechanical thing. And Dante's going to say shortly, he's going to say in his past, or he's going to say, both things are required, the authority and the penance. If you take either one of them away, if you take the authority away and you leave somebody in his sins, what do you have? Despair. You've got the Gorgon. If you take penance seriously, or you take that without the authority, without the proper thing, I mean, you've either got the despair or Guido playing with the sacraments. 
taking the sacraments when he's not really repentant. So both keys are necessary. The authority to absolve, to loosen or bind, and the wisdom with which to do it. Now, I'm just, take a minute. Think about the church and the number of priests and ask yourself if priests always administer the sacraments as they should. I mean, we, we know, yeah, we, we know about corruption in the church. So we know that they can be misused. Dante's saying here for for Dante the Pilgrim going up, that both of those keys have to be taken seriously because if they're not, the human person loses. So he's, to begin this penance is to step into the gravest of things. It's the sacramental world that the world doesn't know. It's what Christ was describing in the Beatitudes. Blessed is he who, woe is he who, this is the separation for this gate and all that Dante's going to learn from this point as, as he goes up purgatory. Okay. Let's stop, because I'm already, I'm really sorry, I wanted to, I took too much time to the, the, the Trinity and memory and... Oh, it's great. Oh, what about the date? We'll talk about it next week. Alright. <laughs> I knew there was going to be a lot today with this whole thing of memory, and I didn't want to...